God from Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. All right. Good morning, everybody. Ready or not, uh, here we go into uh, chapter 4 and all the glory of, of what is to come yet in Revelation. I saw uh, Sue Bickle greeting me in the hallway when we first walked in the door and said, Happy Revelation 4 Day. <laughs> all right, because here we go. Uh, ready or not. And where's, where's Christine Salerno? She was sitting up here. Ah, there you are. So I, we were, uh, I was getting ready for this morning, getting the clothes out and everything, and I could hear Jeffrey asking, is the crazy lady going to be my teacher today? <laughs> and so somehow, I don't know how this happened, but uh, Christine has affectionately become the crazy lady in our, church, in our, in our home. I don't know if it's Georgia or, uh, or, or Jeffrey who were, came up with the name, but I think it's because she has so much fun with the kids in their class, she just is like a big kid herself down there, and they love her, and I said, go in there, but Jeffrey, he's a little more on the timid side, right, and so, you know, Jeffrey can be all ready to go to class, and go down the stairs, around the corner, and then, man, there's Christine, hey, Jeffrey, and you can see him sort of, ah, maybe just back up just a little bit, you know, puts his hand on my leg, make sure I'm still here, and then he just kind of, you know, works his way back in, and then he's all in, and he's fine, and I feel like, you know, the book of Revelation kind of does that to us. You get, you, it opens up in chapter 1 with this glorious abstract vision of Jesus, right? And then, you know, so we get our feet wet. And then and we kind of back it off a little bit. And we just kind of, you know, get more of the straightforward letters to the individual churches just to kind of work us back in. But man, now, Revelation 4, here we go. We're all in an apocalyptic glory that is Revelation, Right? And so as we do this, you have to remember the things we talked about 
a couple weeks back at week one, like apocalyptic literature to us, a completely foreign language, right? To the ancient reader, maybe not so much, but to us, it's a foreign language. And so we got to remember that it's different stuff here. And we have to remember what apocalyptic literature aims to do, right? It aims to kind of pull the curtain back so we can see through very uh, symbolic imagery some of the deeper spiritual dynamic uh, that plays out in life, but, you know, behind the scenes in life today, life in the past, and life uh, still yet to come. And part of our job is to just sort of look at these glorious images and just sort of soak in the big picture. All right, there's a million and one details in all of these, and unless we want to be here until mid-afternoon or, or pushing up on dinner time, I can't touch on all of it, and I can't dissect every little aspect in here. Apologies if I skip over something that you particularly want to know about. Come talk to me afterwards. Uh, but my goal uh, as we move into this is to really just soak in the big picture and see what this big picture has to say for us. Uh, and I will let you know uh, we are still actually easing our way into it because we're going to take a little break after today. Uh, somebody from Grace uh, graciously paid for me to go with Bob and Corey and Kathy Cambick over to Israel, leaving tomorrow morning. Uh, I guess they thought my illustrations of the Holy Land were a little lame, and so I needed to go see it firsthand. So I'm getting sent over there tomorrow. Um, and so Pastor Tim and Pastor Mark are actually going to preach for the next two weeks, not in Revelation, on some other things that God is laying on their own hearts. Um, and then when we get back, we'll dive into even greater stuff in chapter 5. Right? Or, or I don't know. I don't I don't mean to offend if chapter 4 is your favorite, whatever. But it's all glorious stuff. So here we go. We want to see this big picture this morning. Okay, but having said that, there's one little thing in the very beginning that I want to just slow down for a second and bring to your attention or just remind us of. You know, John looks up and he sees this door open into heaven and he hears the one, like the voice of the trumpet that he heard before saying, come, Come up here, and I must. I have to show you things that are going to take place, the text says, after this. Okay, and that little line, after this, or those two words, after this, it's the Greek word, Greek words, metatauta. And, okay, that's actually borrowed, most likely, from Daniel 2. Much of Revelation 4 is borrowed from Daniel 2. And in Daniel 2... Uh, the writer uses that fra- same phrase, and when it's translated into the Greek, it's that same phrase, metatauta, after this. And when Daniel uses it there, I wish we could go back and read it, but we don't have time. He's referring to things that are going to take place in the latter days. He actually calls it that, the latter days, the last days. Go look up Daniel 2, verse 28 and 45, right, you'll see. He calls this metatauta, referring to things after this or in the last days. Okay, but here's the really important question. According to the New Testament, when do those last days begin? Yeah, who said it? <laughs> yeah, there you go, Joe, right? The resurrection. Like, think, think Acts chapter 2, where Peter stands up before the crowds, and he quotes from the prophet Joel, who you know, gives this prophecy that in the last days, your sons and daughters, or my spirit is going to be poured out on your sons and daughters, and they're going to prophesy, and they're going to dream dreams and have visions. And when is he referring to? He's actually referring to that particular point in time, because the whole crowd is, you know, hearing all these people going around speaking in tongues and saying, are these people drunk or what? And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. This is exactly what the prophets told us was going to happen in the last days. 
You know, or like when Peter is writing his letter to the churches in Second Peter chapter 3. Who, you know, these churches that are going through trial and are experiencing scoffing and ridicule. He reminds them, hey, remember what the prophet said, that in these last days you will experience scoffing and trial. But hold fast. Or John, when he writes to his churches in 1 John chapter 2, he says, little children, certainly we are in the last hour. You've heard it said, Antichrist will come. I tell you, there are multiple Antichrists out there. So surely we are in the last hour. Or Hebrews chapter 1. On and on we could go. The point being, remember, from the perspective of the New Testament, when do the last days or the last era, the last age of time begin? It's when Christ is resurrected and ascends to the throne. Right? Those last days have broken into the present. And see, here's why this is so important. When we read this And we see in the beginning of chapter 4, let me show you the things that are going to take place after this, or metatauta, right? This is not stuff that is happening off in some far-off distant future, right? This is a look behind the scenes of what's going on in the heavenly control room today. Or this is stuff that was going on in heaven 2,000 years ago when John first wrote this and delivered it to the churches, Right, so it has direct, and this is part of a pet peeve of mine, part of the reason Revelation often gets so overlooked is because we just assume all this strange stuff in here, that's just weird visions about the future that I don't know anything about, and so, ah, we'll just leave that book on the shelf. Man, Revelation has so much direct impact for today, and so we're always going to be trying to bring more and more of the book into the present, as is responsible enough to do, or whatever. Right, so this, all to say, this has great impact for us today. So let's get into it. Uh, John looks up there, and he, he, he enters into the Spirit, and he's, he's taken there into this heavenly scene. And he sees a throne right in the center of the, of the room or wherever he's at. And he can tell that there's one seated on this throne, right? But it's almost like he can't quite make out that, you know, we don't get much description of the one on the throne, other than he is just radiating all this light and color. He says the one on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and there was this rainbow of emerald all around him. Remember, in the ancient world, these precious stones were precious and valuable, not because they were rare, per se, but because of the way they intensified light. And they took light, and they would bend and refract it into all these different colors. Right? So as John is looking at this throne, he's looking like at a, you know, big rock of jasper like you look at it and you look at it from different angles man light is sparkling off of it and it's refracting into blues and yellows and greens and browns or then it looks like carnelian with its rich red or then this whole glow around him this rainbow of emerald right it's almost a picture here is like when you look at the sun you know and it's noonday height you look up at it, and you can sort of make out a shape up there, but it's just so radiant, and it's so, whatever, inapproachable light that you just can't, you can't look at it for too long, or you can't make out a concrete shape. That's, that's sort of the idea here. He's looking at this throne. He can tell there's one on the throne, but he's just radiating this unapproachable light such that he can't quite make it out. And he can hear from the throne, or he sees flashes of lightning coming from the throne. He can hear... Uh, rumblings and peals of thunder, he says. Man, was we're getting these warmer days, which is kind of warm in here all of a sudden. This is like the first time it's been warm in here for a while. But as we're getting these warmer days and the rains start coming, I was thinking, you know, yesterday or earlier this week, 
Man, I wonder when we're going to get one of those nice late spring, you know, or summer thunderstorms. I like to sit out on the back patio and watch it kind of roll in from the, you know, the southwest there. Yeah, see, Hannah knows what I'm talking about, right? You see the clouds coming in. You can start to heal the, hear the peals of thunder in the distance. I mean, it's just fun to kind of watch come in. You feel the wind pick up. Uh, where that is not fun is if you're like out on a hike somewhere. We're taking a walk on the beach, and you're a long way away from shelter. Wherever, then all of a sudden, this thunderstorm isn't so cool anymore. There's a, a certain awe to it, or a, almost like a terrifying aspect of this. And there's some of that here. There's something unsafe about this one on the throne, and we'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. Okay, but he sees that. He hears the rumblings and peals of thunder. I mean, so much stuff. He sees a sea of glass in front of the throne, that could be a lot of different things. In the Old Testament, right, when you walked into the temple, there was a bronze laver there, or a bronze basin where you would wash, and that was called a sea, right? So it could be a reflection of the, you know, old sea that was in the front of the temple. Or, and I probably tend to lean in this direction, I more relate this to actually the closing scene in the book of Revelation where this heavenly throne room and the city of God is descending out of heaven God is on the throne in the middle of it, and we are particularly told there's no more sea. And you ask, well, why is there no more sea? And that's because elsewhere in the book, in the middle of the book, chapters 15, the sea is the place where the hideous beasts and monsters that wage war against God's people, the sea is the place where you know, those beasts come out of. Kind of reflecting that ancient worldview of the sea as the abode of evil and chaos. So if you ask me, and we can debate about all these little minutiae of these points, but if you ask me, this is just sort of a representation that in this heavenly control room, there is still represent, symbolic representation of all that is not right in the world yet. This chaotic, broken, evil aspect to creation, but it is calm as glass before the sovereign one on the throne. Right? It's winds and it's waves are not roaring in any unsuspecting manner before the one on the throne. It's as calm as glass. And there's a whole lot more we could talk about that, but just hang in. We'll get, it. We'll get there as we work our way through the book. So you got the throne there, and then in front of the throne, you got the seven lamps of fire, which represent, we're told, the fullness of the Spirit of God, which inhabits and empowers His church. Okay, and then here's where it gets interesting. Around the throne... You've got these sort of like concentric circles where around the throne you have 24 other thrones and seated on those thrones are 24 elders all decked out in their white robes and their golden crowns. We're not told exactly who these guys are, but it's probably a safe bet that these are sort of heavenly representations of the people of God. Right? You see that number 24, you tend to think, okay, 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament, the 12 apostles that Jesus builds his church off of in the New Testament. So probably we have here either heavenly or angelic representation of God's people gathered around his throne. Right? And then around them or around the throne in some other fashion, you have these four living creatures who are, in a sense, representations of the created order. And they represent the created order in all of its glory and beauty, right? You've got one there, like with the nobility of, the, of a lion, looks like a lion. Another living creature represents the strength of the ox, 
Another one represents maybe the wisdom of the human figure. And then the other one represents perhaps the swiftness of the eagle in flight. All right? So you have representations of the created order, representations of God's people, all gathered in concentric circles around this throne. Okay, can, so can you see it yet? Am I painting the picture good enough? <laughs> so you see this. You see this glory emanating off of this throne. And then all of a sudden you start to hear right, the voices of the choir start to pick up. And these four living creatures gathered around the throne, they start to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Where's my teenagers? I heard Wednesday night, the, the, the word of the day was holy. Holiness, am I right on that? Where's my youth leaders? Okay, so come on, tell me, what does the word holy mean? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, all I see are the Hoback kids. Oh, there's some more teens scattered over there. Come on. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, nobody? Should I look to the youth leaders? <laughs> I think I watched this video, the Bible Project video, where he talked about holiness. Could reflect some of his good moral attributes. But more than that, just most simply, the word holiness means radically distinct or radically separate or radically other. Right, so it's significant that actually the four living creatures are crying this out before the throne. Holy, holy, holy. Essentially saying, you are not like us. You are no created thing. You are radically distinct from creation. You are radically other. You are radically separate. You know, and that's one of the most important things for us as followers of Christ and worshipers of God, to regularly remember about God, and even to cry out in our own worship of him, God, you are holy, holy, holy. And the reason is because it's just part of the human condition. We have this tendency to make God in our own image. We have a tendency to assume that, well, if there's a God, he surely must think and act the way I do. He must have the same perspectives I do on world affairs and everything that's going on in life and whatever. Or surely this God, you know, his, his agenda in life probably matches up pretty close to what my agenda is, right? So we make this God into our own image, and it's always so important for us to remember. No, God is radically other, and it's good for us to cry out, holy, holy, holy. And remember that first and foremost, God is holy. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is, or the one who was, who is, and who is yet to come. You know, and that little phrase there has kind of stood out to me this week. I imagine that was an encouraging phrase, especially to the early church. You know, in their times of trial, in their times of uncertainty, right? Because when we go through trial and we go through hardship and times of uncertainty, we know that those situations can, it's almost like we get tunnel vision and that's all we see. That is the consuming thing going on in our life. And just a great reminder to us that, hey, the God that we serve, the God that sits on the throne, is the one who existed long before we entered into trial. The one who is with us in the midst of that, and the one who will long outlast our trial. And I often find myself praying when I'm with people at the hospital, maybe praying before a surgery. Lord, Lord, we thank you that you are the one who knows the end from the beginning. The one who is already way out in front of this procedure, this operation, and the one who knows the end from the, end from the beginning, and the one who is already out there leading your people into your future as you determine it. Uh, 
I think of Kathy Mills, right? I just got news, you know, yesterday that that spot on the lung, sure enough, is cancerous. And so now we've got to figure out, okay, how are we going to treat that? And you've got to get more tests and more scans. You've got to put a plan in place. And I imagine there's just a certain degree of uncertainty. And what's this treatment going to be like? Is this treatment going to work? You know, what's in store for me in life? And right, it's part of our responsibility as the family of God around her is to remind her in worship and remind her in conversation or whatever that the God that she serves is one who was there long before this spot ever showed up, the one who was right there in, in the midst of her and the one who was already out in front leading her to whatever glorious future he has in store, already secured. And Kathy knows this. She was telling me that this morning, actually, when, she, when we walked in. So she's probably doing a better job of reminding us about that along the way. So anyway, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is yet to come. And, and when the elders are sitting on the throne, on their 24 thrones, and they hear that refrain coming from the choir of the created beings all around them. When they hear that refrain, holy, 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 they get off of their thrones, they fall their faces, they take off their crowns, they cast it before the throne, and they cry out, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. And, 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 you know, I I don't want to make too much of all these little details here, but John, he has this way of throwing into these pictures and into these chapters just all these little things that would have sounded so familiar to the ancient reader. Right? That phrase, our Lord and our God, in the Latin, Dominus Deus Noster, which would have been exactly the phrase that Emperor Domitian would have demanded of his followers to cry out in his presence. Dominus Deus Noster. Actually, this whole scene uh, bears a lot of resemblance to the court of Caesar. You know, Caesar would be sitting on a throne. The emperor would be sitting on a throne right in the middle. You'd have counselors, a court of counselors and elders around him. And then maybe you would have emissaries or local provincial governors come in. And when they would come before the emperor, they would get down on their knees. They would take off their crowns, cast it, lay it down before the throne. And they would cry out, Dominus Ideus Noster. Noster. You know, and I think the significance of this, like imagine if you're part of the ancient church, like think you're part of the church in Pergamum who is experiencing affliction and persecution from the hands of Rome because they won't go into the town square and burn a pinch of incense to the emperor. Or because they won't go to these celebratory feasts where people are gathering and honoring the emperor as God and sacrificing you know, meat to him or whatever, right? And as a result, and not doing that, right, they're starting to experience the heavy hand of Rome. Rome and all of its power, Rome and all of its glory and all of its might, right, which would tempt them to fear, which might tempt them to conform to whatever, I don't know, right? So what a vision to them to, you know, have the, the curtains pulled back and to see the heavenly throne room, to see the heavenly control center of the universe, really, and to see there all the, the creatures crying out, holy, 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 and the, and the elders around the throne getting off their throne, casting down their cry, crowns, and crying out to the true God, Dominus Ideus Noster, our true Lord and our God. You know, and for us, okay, we don't live in a time where we experience physical persecution from you know, political authorities because of our religious convictions. Not yet, perhaps, right? But, 
you know, if you think about this idea of idolatry, which we're going to talk about a lot throughout the book of Revelation, there are these things that we elevate to godlike status in our hearts. And we fear what happens to life if we don't have those things. Like if you're a workaholic and you work, I don't know, 80, 90 hours a week and you're rarely able to be home and available with your kids or with your church or with your neighborhood or whatever, like part of that might be because you've elevated status and respect or success and accomplishment to something of ultimate value and you fear that your life will fall apart if you don't have that. Or if you're someone who obsesses day and night with counting calories or making sure you're at the gym six, seven days a week and making sure that your little Fitbit is getting, giving you praise at the end of the day. Right? Maybe you've elevated body image or health and vitality to something of godlike status and you fear your life will fall apart without it. Or if you're a young person and you find yourself craving uh, you know, the, the admiration or the love of, of others or friends or whatever, it's quite possible that you have elevated to godlike status, I don't know, popularity or relational security, whatever it is, and you fear your life is going to fall apart without it, right? And in other words, what's happening here? Like these things are, these good things, natural things, are being elevated to godlike status, and we fear them, and they come with their list of demands that we must bow before them and cast our crowns before them and obey the whatever requirements that they have in order to attain them, they demand that we cry out before them, Dominus, Adeus, Noster, my Lord and my God. I mean, if you ever feel convicted about that and want to be free of that, how do you do that? <laughs> you, well, you enter into the circle here with God at the center, and you begin to join the choir. We'll come back to that thought. And so they cry out, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Right, which is perhaps the, the main, the, the heart of the praise here is this, we're celebrating God as creator. Next week it'll be God as, or in a couple of weeks it'll be God as redeemer. But now it's God as creator. And you, you pick up there, right, this uniquely Christian notion that, the material world and creation is not just some sort of is not just the result of some sort of accidental collision of atoms or some lightning that struck some molecule and boom all of a sudden we got life on the scene or it's not according like like the ancient perspective that creation came out of this cosmic warfare that took place and whoa there's creation all of a sudden no that creation comes from the mind and the will and the creative power of the creator who, by the way, didn't have to create. He didn't have some deep, emotional, unfulfilled need such that he had to create to have this need met. No, his creation was purely of his own goodwill, of his own good desire. It was purely an act of joy for him to make the world and to flood it with life. And because it comes from the will of one who himself is good and just and right, Right? There is a goodness to that life as well, too. And that's why these guys are praising him. They're praising him because he is the creator who has given to them all that they are and all that they have. You know, or in other words, what I guess what I'm partly trying to say here is, you know, what's happening here around the throne. It's not like this is the, 
you know, ticket price to get into the heavenly throne room. It's not like, you know, when you go to see the, the queen in England, you have a whole session with somebody who's going to tell you exactly how you have to act in their presence and, you know, exactly when you, you bow and when you speak and when you don't speak or when you can turn or when you cannot turn or when the queen does this, this is what you do, right? It's not like you have someone standing at the gate of this heavenly throne room saying, okay, here's the deal. You're going to go into the presence of the Almighty One. And when you hear the four living creatures cry, holy, holy, that's your cue to cry out, worthy are you? Right? This is not like price of admission to get in. This is simply the overflow of praise that is stirring and bubbling up and, and bursting out of these guys who are so one and all, in awe of the one who is seated on the throne. <laughs> and then so full of praise and thankfulness. It was, this, it was the joy of this God to create the world and flood it with life and give to them all that they have. And so there's your scene, right? This, this glorious picture and this choir that's shouting these anthems of praise. You know, in the minutes that we have left, just oh, what, what does it mean for us? I, I would say, you know, this part of what you have in Revelation 4 is part of the interest of the whole book. The whole part of the aim of the whole book is to invite you in on this glorious God-centered worship. Revelation 4 is an invitation to you to join the circle, to enter the circle, and to join the choir. To enter into this circle with the one on the throne firmly into this, in the center and to see him in all of his awe and glory and power and to respond with all the representations of all of creation. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and power. And that's such an important invitation because we all know that, you know, it's part of this sickness of the human condition that we just now have this tendency to become centers of gravity in and of ourselves and expect that anything and everything should just enter into orbit around us, right? We expect our relationships to just revolve around us and aim at our desires and pleasures and purposes. We expect that the material creation must exist simply for our delight and enjoyment and the things that we want to use it for. And we think that even God himself should use all of his godness and all of his power and authority to enter into our orbit and to serve our agenda and serve our goal and our purposes in life. We spend our days consumed with you know, making sure our needs and our desires are met or make sure that we're treated fairly and justly or make sure that we are on the path to the good life, right? Everything just kind of revolves around us if we're not careful. Actually, it was Eugene Peterson. He wrote a great little book on the book of revelation i think his chapter on worship is perhaps the best best one in the, in the in the book and he says this though people who do not worship with god at the center it's like they live life in a vast shopping mall where they go from shop to shop expending enormous sums of energy and making endless trips to meet first this need and then that appetite this whim and then that fancy he says, life lurches from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment. Motion is fueled by the successive illusions that purchasing this wardrobe or driving that car or eating this meal or drinking that beverage will center my life and give it coherence. 
And, and what he's sort of getting at is I think what we all know, that a life lived in radical self-absorption is a miserable life. Right? A life spent constantly obsessing over how my needs and desires are going to be met and how I'm going to be treated justly and fairly and how I'm going to make sure our, my goals are being accomplished. It's to enter into a state of misery. It leads to dissolution of relationships. Right? As two people who are their own centers of gravity, expecting the other to orbit around them, it winds up, we just wind up pulling apart from one another. You know, or certainly if we expect that God is going to get off of his throne, cast his crown before us and enter into our orbit for, to accomplish our own purposes and goal, well, that relationship, to say the least, is going to be a little bit strained. Right? Uh, we actually call this way of living a pathology. We have a name for it. We call it narcissism. Right? But the problem with you know, this whole narcissistic, whatever, narcissism is, is always an out there problem. There's <laughs> always somebody else that deals with narcissism. And we forget that actually this is just part of the sickness of the human condition. That we have now this natural bent to become these centers of gravity. Or to put it another way, when we turn our back from God at the center and we chart out on life on our own. Right, you can't help but be as we break from that orbit to become centers of gravity ourselves and everything else now orbits around us. It's a pathological condition. And if that weren't bad enough, there's one other thing we need to point out here about God as creator, and that is that not only is he the one who's created, but he's the one who retains ownership rights over his creation who still has a vested interest in his creation. And the other part of the whole book of Revelation is this unfolding story of where God is going to make things right in his creation. He's going to deal with all that is not right. And he's going to remove from his creation all those who are hell-bent on making the created order and all the relationships and all of God's people orbit around them and taking them, use them for their selfish gain instead of his glorious purposes. And now's where you get a little bit of that frightening nature of that thunderstorm. <laughs> Every time God shows up on the scene to judge and to deal throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to hear that thunderstorm coming. And so the question becomes, well, how do I, how do I find safety? How do I find refuge from that? And how do I find you know, newness of life, a life that is set free, to live in the joy of, of having God at the center and living out this wonder, you know, this, this joyful worship. Well, <laughs> that's actually what Revelation 5 is going to be about a bit. I want to keep you uh, holding your breath for a couple of weeks here. So we'll let you we'll remind you of the story. We'll remind you of the story of how this God actually did get off his throne. And how this God did choose to enter into a broken creation in the person of Jesus Christ who lived the life perfectly that we were supposed to live, who died the death that we were supposed to die, all so that we could be forgiven of our waywardness and our radical self-absorption. And he was also victorious over the power of sin and death and his resurrection three days later, so that all those who look to him and entrust their lives to him and cry out to him, Man, that victory is applied to them. And that spirit that sits in front of the throne goes to inhabit and to indwell and to empower those people 
with new eyes to see the glory of God, new ears to hear the praises of all creation, and a new heart that desires, not uh, albeit imperfectly at present, but desires yet to move out of our own self-centered orbit and put God at the center and join with all of creation in these songs of praise. And that's the invitation for you this morning. And so the simple question is, how are you doing with that? How are you doing going at life with the one on the throne firmly fixed in the center? You know, how are you doing taking time and creating space, you know, day to day, where you can just reflect on the glory and the power and the sovereign authority of the one who sits on the throne, such that it would lead you in awe? Or how are you doing creating space where you just pause and reflect all that has been graciously given to you by the hand of the creator and by the hand of the redeemer, such that it leads you to respond in just joy that the holy one on the throne would be pleased and delighted to extend all of that to me in grace and in love? How are you doing not only entering in that circle, but joining the voice of the choir and responding with your words, with your prayers, with your life, with your participation at home or at church or whatever. How are you doing echoing that anthem and living a life of worship, living a life of joyful praise and gratitude? Right, the invitation this morning is to come and do that. that. This is what you were made for. You were created to delight in that which is most glorious. You were created to delight in that which is most holy, which, in that which is most full of sovereign authority. You were created to delight in that which is most gracious, most giving, most loving. And this is the stuff that's going to center you in life. Right? As you go out into a world that has a whole cacophony of rival voices trying to tell you, no, this is the pathway to the good life. It's this that will center you. Or as you go at... Sometimes the trials and the difficulties and the uncertainties of life. It's this, the worship of the one on the throne, which will center you in the midst of all that. Right? And it's worship of the one on the throne, firmly in the center, that will also inspire and motivate us to live life as living testimonies of his glory and his goodness and his graciousness to a world that def- desperately needs to see it. And so we pray that God would give you Today and throughout this week, ears to hear the songs of the choirs, eyes to see the glory of the one on the throne in the middle, and hearts that desire, again, albeit someone imperfectly until the day comes, but who desire all the more to put him in the center, to enter into the circle, and to join the choir, all for his honor and glory and the advance of his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.